0: To Endeavors. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. Today, I double dip, and I'll be speaking with singer-songwriter Haley Blaze on her new album, Below the Salt, as well as acclaimed author Emma Donahue on her new novel, Pull of the Stars. That's all coming up. On Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. It's Sunday. Yes, I know. I worked seventy-five hours this week and basically slept all day yesterday. Uh, so this is me putting up the episode a couple of days late. There would be a little of a ripple effect, so instead of Monday, Wednesday, Friday, next week we're going to have Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Uh, and then the following week I should be back to two episodes a week. Speaking of two, I have two great guests on the show today. Singer-songwriter Haley Blaze and author Emma Donahue. Haley Blaze is a singer songwriter currently based in Vancouver. In 2018, she found great success with her EP, Let Yourself Go. She's following that up with her f- debut full length studio album, Below the Salt. And she got some help on this record from some great producers, the band Tennis, as well as Vancouver artist Louise Burns. The album has been described as a coming-of-age album that doesn't actually come of age. The single on it is called Rob the original. And Haley talks about how that song title was inspired from an entry on the Wikipedia page for Et, uh, which is one of her favorite movies. So the blow the salt is out now as of july twenty fifth, and on September thirteenth, uh, there will be a celebratory live stream by Haley to celebrate the albums released. Proceeds from band camp sales will be donated to Hogan's Alley Society. This is my conversation with singer-songwriter Haley Blaze. How's, uh, how's the quarantine life?
1: You're looking at it. <laughs> In the well, room, drinking coffee, on yeah. the lap. Pretty, pretty much
0: it. Sounds about right. Um, You know, I was, I was reading the, um, the, the description here of, of your music, and it describes you as defiant, screaming to your pillow, bedroom pop anthems. Love that. How would you describe what bed? What do you think bedroom pop is?
1: I was actually talking about this to someone the other day. And to me, I think it literally, for me personally, literally just translates to the fact that I made music in my bedroom. And I think that's probably what it is.
0: Okay, yeah. Right?
1: Like, you're just sleepily on your bed, and everything's spread out on the duvet. (laughs) And, like, you're trying to get the mic stand to, like, balance on the bed. But it's a bed. That's what I'd say.
0: What what does... a place like a bedroom, what does that do sonically and acoustically for your music?
1: Oh, as a sound engineer, <laughs> I I don't even know. I would think it softens and like dampens it, but I usually am like a reverby girl. So maybe that's not the best. I mean, this album was not recorded in the bedroom, but anything prior was kind of DIY. So.
0: Is, is there a certain philosophy though uh, attached to that as well in terms of how something sounds stylistically and in, in, in in how it's recorded?
1: Probably, like, I think it may, I mean, the perform, for me, recording in my bedroom, the performance of it is a lot more intimate and quiet, which I like, and I find that the difference between like recording in some place that you know is familiar and like a studio, it's just like a lot more comfortable. And like I always love my demo recordings better than what comes out in the studio because I'm at home and I'm usually like crunched over like hunchback and so when we were recording this album I asked if I can try a vocal take where I was like sitting down like hovering over the mic and it actually didn't work it didn't translate as well because I wasn't in my bedroom
0: you know it's interesting in in the era that we're in a lot of artists and musicians are live streaming from various Mm -hmm. rooms in the home and bedrooms a lot as well. How do you think COVID has changed or, or is going to change how we consume music and the live music experience?
1: Yeah, I'm really concerned about the, like, especially local Vancouver venues. There's so many DIY venues that even when we were able to go to concerts, we're struggling a bit because it's, it's so reliant on the community and people who attend. So I'm very interested to see and hope that they thrive throughout this and are able to bounce back once we're hopefully able to go back to concerts again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I haven't really dipped my toe in too much of like the live streaming and stuff, but I mean, I love, I'd love to, the reality of like going to a concert from your bed or like sit down concerts. The, the introvert in me loves that idea. but. The musician who is building a career off of live music and concerts and people listening and attending her shows is scared for it for sure
0: Art I mean at the same time though I think artists have a have a quite an adaptability and, and, and a mm-hmm. flexibility. Um, how does something like this how can it inspire us creatively?
1: I think there's a lot more time to be spent at home without pressures. Of like the outside world writing like for me personally i've been really enjoying taking my time writing song and not feeling the need to like finish it with a time crunch because maybe i have a show coming up and i want to like present it or like demos and stuff it's all just like everything feels so unhinged that maybe there's not so much pressure on artists
0: you 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 talk about um in in your songs, you know, the, this idea of, can I become what I think I am? Um, Mm -hmm. Where do you, where do you stand on, on this idea of a musical coming of age?
1: Love that. Like a literal musical?
0: No, just like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I mean, Hey, if you don't write a musical called, you know, come as you are, I, I guess, you know, No,
1: I I love that idea. I mean, I think all of my music inadvertently is kind of like this nostalgia-based genre that I'm, I mean, there's only so many times you can come of age, but I like that you can do it whenever you want. It's timeless.
0: We are, you know, now that we're in the 2020s, hard to believe, but Mm. we are the 90s is having a bit of a revival and a bit of a nostalgia, we're we're revisiting a lot of those shows again, a a, a lot of that music again. Mm -hmm. Why do you, why do we yearn for nostalgia and why do we yearn for, I guess, specific eras when we become a specific age?
1: God, I don't know, the, the, I don't, I don't know, that's, that's so, I think that's so subjective. For me, it's just like wanting to revisit things that were so familiar. Um, I can't speak for anyone else, but um, there's just something magical about like a time that's passed and that you can't touch anymore. History. <laughs> Love history.
0: And, you know, g- given the very DIY aesthetic that that you have, would you describe yourself as retro at all?
1: Um. I don't know, maybe not so much because I don't know a lot about like production and like for me I was just recording on GarageBand so I don't know how retro GarageBand is on my like new laptop. I wasn't too ahead of the times of like innovative ways to create cool sounds or like to produce music in unique ways. I was pretty straightforward. I mean I picked the ukulele to write my music on initially, like, would be the easiest. <laughs> I kind of took the easy route, but I mean, all my influences are definitely, I guess, considered retro. 70s singer-songwriters, mm. stuff like that, people who paved the way for minds like mine.
0: The, the, the ukulele is a very interesting choice. I, I, I think there's um, not a stigma, but when you play the ukulele, it's like, okay, you're, you're, you're a hipster folk artist um, are, are, are there certain misconceptions about the ukulele in, in, in sort of its image and what it does musically?
1: I mean yeah maybe now um, after that whole era of like people on YouTube playing covers on the ukulele it might it may have given it a bad name and like I even kind of look at it you know as like oh you're not this isn't so impressive But I mean, with every instrument, there's like a master of it. So there's probably people who are, I know there's people out there that are just like masters on the ukulele and they use it. And it's such a beautiful art form when you can do it right. But I think I just kind of took the easy way out. Uh,
0: Another thing that that's described uh, on your bio is this, uh, it says jangling piano and and violin. And and I think that verb jangling, um, people might not know what it means, but they're like, oh yeah, it's just that sound. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how would you just sort of describe the, the musicality of, of something that that jangles?
1: It definitely is like an onomatopoeia where it sounds like the way you just say jangling and it's just kind of like clunky and almost like it, the instrument itself is coming of age and trying to create something, but it's still learning kind of.
0: I, I, I think there is a a bit of a revivalist love affair with the so-called clanky music. Mm-hmm. Um, I just talked to a, a musician named Ron Hawkins um, the other day, who you know recorded on on a two four six and talked about that sort of you know clankier, more more unrefined sound. Um, mm-hmm. What is this sort of the, this un, you know unproduced or? or you know, more, more natural DIY aesthetic in, in terms of sound, what makes that so appealing than, than a, you know, very sort of, you know, high quality produced, like, you know, bubblegum pop or a or rock record.
1: Yeah. I think there's just like an authenticity to it. That's kind of tangible and it feel you can like feel it, the instrument playing as it's being played. It doesn't sound like it's very, like to me, if I hear like a really high fi record or song, it's still super impressive and authentic. I'm not diminishing anyone's efforts, but like I love being able to hear like fingers and just like ambiance. I like hearing the work behind it. There's something genuine about that.
0: How quickly did did you discover that that, that was your, your 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 musical style, the the sound that you wanted to to emulate?
1: I don't know. I, I just I kind of resonate with hearing the work behind it I'm and also I mean I don't really know what my musical style is I think it's always going to be evolving but um, like the clunky kind of jangling vibe is just so nice simple you know
0: for for you is it is it as much about the process as it is the the end result Is, is is there a beauty in the The actual workshopping and in creation as as to as well as the final output
1: oh totally, I think that's the most fun part is being able to like the process of writing songs and getting excited about them and the just the prospect of what it's gonna sound like I think is so exciting to me. I like being surprised, so I like not knowing what it's gonna <laughs> be like in the end
0: your 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 new single the the one that's streaming right now um is. Rob, the original, uh, which Fled describes as an empathetic single balancing concern for mental health with guitar and piano-led instrumentals brimming with positivity. Uh, where, did, where did that song start for you?
1: The demo version of it and the way I initially wrote it was very mellow and brooding and dark, kind of like the way the lyrics, it, it really was just parallel to the lyrics. But when we were producing it, we brought in Pat and Elena from Tennis, and they added like these really cruising kind of positive sounding instruments over it, which I I really like the contrast between the message of the song and the intent of it. It was like these these summer vibes over it. Um, I like the contrast with that, and I really like the way it ended up because it's kind of like oh, this sounds like a fun, nice summer song, but if you listen to it, it's sad. <laughs> you,
0: you know, many many musicians will you know, oversee every aspect or, or do everything themselves, especially as an indie musician, what is the importance of collaboration for you and, and bringing in those outside voices?
1: Yeah, this was, this album was the first time I had brought in, like, external collaborators that actually took a look at my song, songs, plural, and were like, let's change them. So I had to give up a little bit of, like, creative freedom on the way I wanted the song to sound, whereas before I'd be like, took it to my bandmates, and we kind of just fleshed it out and didn't try anything too drastic so I thought I was gonna be scared about that and for the first few like hours I was and I'm like oh good they're changing my songs but I think there there's a lot to be learned from that and I love it now like I love bringing in actual producers and not me flailing in the studio being like sure that sounds good you know there's I learned so much from it so I think it's really important.
0: You know the the flood talks about the the song being a, a a concern for mental health, and that's something we're talking about more, especially in times of quarantine and self isolation and in COVID. Um, why, for you, was that an important subject to to touch upon?
1: I just um, it's based on a friend of mine, so I just it's emotional and important to me, and I wanted to write about them and. I don't know. I just thought, why not? I mean, it's a subject we should bring to light. And I mean, if you can turn it to something beautiful and hopefully help someone, then that's good.
0: <laughs> where Where do you think we are as a society in terms of talking about mental health and, and you know, getting mental health care and, and all that?
1: At least in my communities, it's not taboo anymore. I know in a lot of places it still is especially with like older generations and my parents and everyone else's parents um but i think we're making big strides and i think that's important i mean specifically with my friends like we are so open and i think that's if you have that outlet then that's
0: great what do you what do you think causes the 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 younger generation to to be more open like that does does you know is it the fact that we were, you know, so used to the internet and technology to young age, are we exposed to more or, or is there, you know, is there something within our, our genes that, that make us more, more willing to, to talk about these issues?
1: It's probably, uh, all of the above. I think definitely like having the internet to reach out to talk to people. I know that even just like talking to people on the internet is a lot more freeing because there's a vulnerability in it, but also it's not, like sitting down your friend and talking to them face to face, which is still important, but like, at least for me, it's a, there's like a, there's a protective layer. So vulnerability is easier. I think.
0: Does, does vulnerability make for good creativity?
1: Definitely. I don't think I can write a song unless I'm like fully into it. And a lot of my older songs are like fake stories that I make up in my head um, because I really love Andy Schaaf and I think a lot of his songs are like fiction-based conceptual. Um, But something I'm trying in the last like couple years is to be really vulnerable and write about my own experiences which is super cathartic.
0: You know Vancouver can be a very stifling city at times and you know it can be it was for a while, very saturated, especially with the, you know, the, 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 the indie songwriters, mm-hmm. but it's, I think it's changing. How, how do you think being based in Vancouver um, in such a diverse, but such a, you know, kind of closed city in, in, in many ways has, has affected you, your songwriting?
1: Um. Yeah, I think that there's just so many different artists making such cool music. That's, there's so much variety that it's really inspiring. And then also being a part of different bands myself, I'm in a band called Babe Corner and I play bass in the the lead singer and guitarist. It's her project. Um, she also plays guitar in my band. So there's just like a lot of cl- crossover collaboration and just getting to know other artists I think is super important and hearing their music. It's just inspiring to be in a community where everyone's kind of working together to achieve the same goal.
0: Your are uh, Rob the Original is, is the single, um... Off of below the salt, mm-hmm. um, where where do you remember where the I guess idea for this al- the whole album do you do you think originated from?
1: I didn't really have like a grand aha moment like I'm gonna make an album and I'm gonna write a songs songs for it. It it was like I wrote these songs and then I realized they could be an album and it just kind of, <laughs> I was kind of going with it. So I realized I was making an album after I wrote all the songs for it. So it really is like a bookmark of all different points in my life the last like four years. So that's cool. It's more like just about it's like a timeline for me to look back on. There's nothing um, too big of an idea behind it.
0: How, how would you describe your writing process? Are you a lyrics first type of person or do you find that you write the, the melody and then the words?
1: They kind of come together at, at all at the same time, at least like maybe a chorus or a verse and I'll work around it. I don't think I'll ever write a lyric that's without music behind it first, like maybe a poem or something like that. Um, it it'll, all it'll kind of comes to me, but I'm not opposed to the idea of changing it up. I'm always learning new ways to write songs, so.
0: You, you mentioned tennis um, who were uh, involved with this, but also you had uh, Louise Burns uh, help you out on, on the record. What what did someone like her and, and, and her pedigree bring bring to this record?
1: It was awesome having her on. She's such a cool person having in the studio, especially like for me where I'm not used to having producers too much in the studio. And we, she was the one I worked with the longest. We were in there for about a week and a bit. And her kind of take to the songs was to make them a lot more dark and droney. And kind. Of, I think she has a lot of 80s influences that she wanted to input into the songs which I really like how even though there's two different producers on this album or groups of producers it's really cohesive weirdly and I was kind of afraid that like having tennis who's kind of more a lot of their songs are just like they have more of an upbeat brightness to them and Louise brought the darkness so there's the yin and the yang and it worked together really well
0: uh, your your bio describes it, um, it sort of in, in the style of Stevie Nicks, Karen Carpenter, and and Hanley Williams. And not only is that a great trifecta to be included with, but it, it's also very you know you got like sort of one from the seventies or you know one from the eighties and, and and one from the from from the two thousands. Um, yeah. what, what does that mean to you to be included with with those three great but also very different? types of singers
1: um an honor (laughs) truly also i think it speaks volumes on what the record to expect from the record because it is so eclectic it's not like this is a folk album this is a pop album it's there's so many different influences on it especially the carpenters kind of carol king vibe is everything i always strive to be so yeah it's just like a good indicator of what to expect this time from me but who knows what will happen next time, too?
0: You know, I, I, I think indie ba- indie bands and indie singers, when, when they make a record, it is a lot more wide ranging than you know maybe some of the the, the industry bands that you see, like rock records or, or metal records or or, or hip hop records. Yeah. Is 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 that is that ever a concern for you that you you know you be, because you're you're making so many different styles that you could have simultaneously appeal to more people. And, and less people.
1: Um, yeah, it's a good way of looking at it. I, I never usually think too hard on those things. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I didn't do it mindfully. <laughs> I never do anything <laughs> without... I mean, I usually fly by the seat of my pants. So I'm just kind of going with the flow. So not a lot of thought on my part. <laughs> you,
0: you know, I, whenever I talk to musicians in the past, they always say, oh, you know... I wrote this song for this record and then it wasn't on this one and then I didn't you know, release it in, in, until you know, three, four albums later. Um, how do you decide what songs are gonna go on any individual record or, or project or, or compilation?
1: I guess you kind of just know, at least for me, you'll just know that this is right for this one. And there are definitely a lot of songs that I'm sitting on just to see if they've reached the final form. Because a lot of them might not just might not be ready or like there's potential there and you just you know that and you see it whereas all the songs on below the salt I'm like this I don't think they're gonna get any better or worse they're kind of just where they need to be and I need to let them
0: go how different are the the, the final forms of songs um, versus you know may, maybe a first draft or, or, or maybe a first recording
1: sometimes, not different at all, sometimes miles apart from where they began, which I, and I love the journey of making a song and especially this time around with this album, having producers come and collaborate, seeing like an embryonic song become like an adult and it not taking the, the road you thought it was gonna take. For example, Too Good, the first single I released was just like an Oregon ballad and it was a 30 second snippet. And Pat and Elena heard it and they were like, let's make this like a Kate Bush pop anthem song. And I was like, okay, let's try it. <laughs> Cause I don't see that for it. But so it's all about just trial and error.
0: It's interesting you mentioned the organ. Cause I think that's a very old instrument and an old school instrument that's definitely making a comeback. Um, I, I, I think in, in, in certain music circles, um, along with the trom- uh, along with the trombone, I've noticed there's there's been mm-hmm. a lot more like um, like brass infused uh, 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 bands now. What, what what do you like about the organ and, and what does it bring that, that maybe a a piano, for example, can't do?
1: Well, there's such a holiness to it, and like a richness. And it's just such a unique sound. And once you hear it, it's so distinct and it can, it can be the only thing that's playing. And it's the only thing you need to hear. I think it's just a special sound to have sonically in your ears at all times.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, now, I'm, this is interesting. I, I read that the, the name of your LP, uh, Below the Salt,
1: mm-hmm. comes
0: from ET, is that true?
1: Um, no, Rob the Original does. Oh, okay. Below the salt is just like a phrase, um, when back, way back in the good old days when salt was priced as gold, and if you couldn't afford it, you sat below the salt, and that meant you were just a normal working guy, and that's me. I'm not rich.
0: Um, but so are are you? Are you a fan of E.T.? Or do you what? What was it about that film that that made you want to use that phrase?
1: It's just it's my favorite movie of all time. And rob the originals from like a wiki. It's it's a deep cut. It's not even from the movie itself. It's just something that Steven Spielberg said about the movie. So it's just like way convoluted. It's like how you get to a weird nickname from like so many different nicknames. So I don't know. It's just paying tribute to it in like a small kind of Easter egg way for me.
0: People, people are still nostalgic about that movie, and it's you know almost forty years old now. Hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you remember the the first time that you saw it and and why you think it stuck with you? I don't remember the
1: first time I saw it. I know I watched it a a bunch as a wee little baby, but the first time I saw it and it stuck with me was when I was 21. And it was like a catalyst for me of things that I would become obsessed with because I never really was like a big super fan of anything as a kid other than I guess probably like Britney Spears, but that's just in our DNA. Um, so just having that thing to grasp that anchor for me when I was like moving out of my parents' house and going out on my own, it was really special. So it just stuck with me. It's kind of like an identifier for me too now.
0: Well, and you know, it is a movie about childhood and, and, and coming of age. And mm-hmm. did, you know, did, did that resonate with you at all, especially because you talk about this album being, being a coming of age of sorts.
1: Yeah. And it, it's just like a story that you can cling on to. And also the story behind it was based on Steven Spielberg's life. So I just love, you know, taking your own personal experiences and turning them into whatever you want, whether it's a song or a movie and people like me could hold on to it for dear life and love it so much.
0: Uh, your, your lyrics talk about, you know, joys and, and banalities of the everyday and needing needing to break away from the uninspiring and, and radical acceptance um, in, on the subject of, you know, things that are banal and perhaps boring. Can, can art, can music make anything, any topic exciting?
1: Sure, if that's, if it resonates with you that way. I mean, I'm sure you could write a song about a water bottle. And if you sculpt it in the way that makes it beautiful or whatever you find beautiful, like, sure, write a song about whatever.
0: What What's the most esoteric um, thing or topic that you've either written about or that has inspired you?
1: Hmm. Well, just recently writing about myself so personally has been hard, but really rewarding. And so I think that's, I've been just channeling like my own experiences and trying to almost not hide them in different songs too, but like references and small jokes to myself. Like I like hiding that in lyrics and people can interpret it however they want. But Yeah. No.
0: This uh, this idea of radical acceptance, I think, is an interesting one because, as artists, especially, you know, a lot of them us as kids are 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 turned away from it, or you know, we don't get accepted. And artists, I think, also have a a tough time accepting themselves. uh, You know, I, I I think in a lot of ways, what was that journey like for you?
1: Um, it's still ongoing. I'm sure. Um, subcon- there's so many subconscious conflicts that someone can have with themselves. But um, yeah, I, it takes time. And I think you really have to like be okay with yourself. And that started with me moving out and finding my own f- feet in the world. Like where, w- what I wanted to do. And now that I'm concrete in the fact that I want to be a musician, I want to write music. That really helped. But who knows, it might change. I'm open to becoming a chef.
0: is, I mean, is, is that what you would do if you weren't a musician would be a chef?
1: No, I don't know. <laughs> just, I just thought of it.
0: Fair. Um, but you, y- you know, it's funny cause you also say how it's it's a coming of age album that doesn't actually come of age. So do, do you think that we are constantly coming of age and, and changing and you know, reevaluating—you know—whether it's our style or our politics or or, or our relationships—and and and how does that play into artistry?
1: Totally, I think like if you're not always open to change, then you should probably try and be, because you can always be better and learn and grow. And there's such an ebb and flow to life and experiences, and your life may be one way this year and change the next, and you have to be open to going with the flow I'm all about kind of taking letting the wind just carry me we'll see what happens but yeah I mean in terms of music I think that this album was really great for me to kind of get out of my system because there is so many different I I feel like I tried my hand at like pop and folk and all this stuff on that album and I'm interested to see if I stick to like something more solid next time like maybe I will just write a folk album or I will just write a pop album and kind of like stick to something and have a consistency and then maybe the next time something else like.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because the the, the press release does describe it as anthems uh, in a lot of way, but I think at least musically, anthem has a very, I think, specific connotation. You think of stadium rock, you know, you know like queen for example you know even like um, uh, like not not Kings Lane, i i but you know sort of sort of the bigger kind of rock bands but you know that that have a a, a modern twist their mm-hmm. names are their names are escaping me right now what what does the word anthem mean to you musically
1: um yeah I, my head doesn't really go to st- stadium rock, but now it will. <laughs> now I'm just going to be thinking of you too. Um, I think it's just kind of like maybe like a flag for a certain experience or something like a, a, an innocence anthem or something. like It's like a signifier for whatever you want it to be and it, it, it embodies that emotion completely or whatever you're feeling. So if it's like a heartbreak anthem, like anthem is just like that chapter of your life.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I just typed in, um, Anthem rock to, uh, into Wikipedia and it came up as arena rock, but it also says dad rock, uh, redirects here. Um, are are you, would you, are you, would you say you're a fan of dad rock?
1: Totally. I was hundred percent raised on it.
0: Is, is it different than mom rock? Do you think is, is there a difference?
1: Um, if we're talking about my mom rock, there's a big difference. <laughs> the ACDC to my mom's Shania Twain. But I guess, like, I don't know. Who says that Shania Twain couldn't write a song that ACDC could write?
0: Fair. Yeah. Cause I, it's funny. I, I was always told that I make dad jokes and listen to mom rock. And, oh, that's good. Know, I was ne- never entirely sure what that meant, but, you know. Uh, I, I, I guess I, uh, you know, I, I guess I have an idea. Um, you know, th- this album comes out, uh, and actually, uh, j- just a few days, mm-hmm. um, given that you, that you can't really go on tour right now, uh, how hard is it going to be for, for the promotional side side of, of a project like this?
1: It definitely feels like I'm screaming into the void, which is super cool. Um, But I'm also excited, it feels like I've had this album, I've carried it with me for a few years and it'll be a relief to let it go and have other people enjoy it and interpret it however they may. And I'm I'm just excited for that. There's a nice, like an unspeakable connection between a musician and their listeners and how they receive the music and how it defines them. So I'm excited to have that bond again because I feel like it's been a while
0: does it does it feel you know you've you've stuck with it for a couple of years now does it feel good to just finally release it is, is yeah yeah
1: yeah. but in a good way it's not like it was a burden uh,
0: how how quickly do you move do you find you move from one project to the next like once the project has actually been released how quickly do you stay with it in terms of like touring and, and promoting before you're ready to make the next thing
1: oh i'm very impatient i'm already <laughs> i'm the gears are already turning and i'm just like let's let's go i'm ready album's out next one uh
0: i mean i, I know your 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 last record was was in 2018 and, and two, you know two, two years is about uh, uh an average time is especially in, in in the indie rock scenes yeah how how quickly would you say you want to get your next album out?
1: I don't know. I think if you had asked me like six months ago, I would say next year. But I think there's now I have a lot of time to really take my time with it and learn. And I think this album experience, like writing and producing it was such a great learning experience. I I know like how to conduct myself now and what I want and you know, learning my way in like a studio with a crew and stuff is, was new to me. So I'm excited to just really take my time with it and be open to learning more and bringing other people on the project. And... Yeah.
0: What do you, what do you think you want to explore in, in, a, in your next project, whether it's musically or, or whether it's just as part of the process?
1: Um, I'd love to, now that I've done it and seen it be more involved in the production and, and uh, trying new things and like taking apart a song and looking at it really critically instead of just like taking a song and being like, I wrote this song and it's, I like it like this and let's do it like this. Like be open to more criticism and trying, and experimenting different things and kind of being in the producer's chair, but also having help. I, I think I would love to have another producer <laughs> come on, but yeah. Uh,
0: well, the album is Below the Salt. Uh, and it is out as of August the 25th yeah. on Tiny Kingdom. Uh, and you can also get it on vinyl as well because vinyl is awesome and will never go away and more people should listen to music on vinyl. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, <laughs> Haley Blaze, thanks so much for for joining me this afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good day. Cheers. Nice talking to you. And, once again, that was my conversation with singer-songwriter Haley Blaze. Her new album, Below the Salt, is out now, and on September 13th, she'll be having a celebratory live stream in honor of the album. Well, from music, we move over to books. And Emma Donahue is perhaps one of the hottest authors around. In 2010, her novel, Room was a finalist for the Man Booker Prize and an international best-seller. She recently adapted the book into a film of the same name, and for this, she was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. The film itself won a Best Actress Oscar for lead Brie Larson, as well as receiving several other nominations including Best Picture. It also won nine Canadian Screen Awards, including Best Motion Picture, and seven Irish Film and Television Awards, including Best Film. Brie Larson also won the BAFTA for Best Actress. But Donahue got her start long before then. Her 1995 novel Hood won the Stonewall Book Award and 2000s Slammerkin won the Pharaoh Grumley Award for Lesbian Fiction, and she is a 2011 recipient of the Alex Awards. Her other novels include Stir Fry, Life Mask, Landing, The Sealed Letter, Frog Music, The Wonder, Akin, and Pull of the Stars. She in addition to her screenplay for Room, she also wrote the screenplay for 2001's Pluck. After releasing Akin late last year, she has come up with a new book, The Pull of the Stars. And what makes this interesting is its release date was actually pushed up because the novel takes place during the 1918 influenza pandemic in Dublin, Ireland, and the main character also happens to be a nurse. I spoke with Emma Donahue last week. About the ironic plotline that it has, as well as anthropomorphizing non human characters, and how she got a handle on all that medical jargon. This is my conversation with Emma Donahue. How's life in, in Toronto?
2: Uh, London, actually, down the road in London, Ontario.
0: Oh, you're in London. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. How's the uh, how's the quarantine life treating you?
2: Oh, it's fine. You know, this was quite a good place to go through it because the roads are quite broad and it's not too crowded, so we never felt we were trying to fight our way through the mobs.
0: <laughs> Fair. You know, it's it's funny. I um I first reached out to to your publicist to to interview you about Akin, and then. Here you are six months later um, with, with another book. Um,
2: <laughs> uh, it's, it's indecently quick. I agree. <laughs> it's like uh, Irish twins. That's the word for it. When two babies in a calendar year.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, how were you able to, to, to pull off this, this book uh, within such quick succession well, of your previous one?
2: Um, in a way, I always write my books pretty quickly, but it's it's just that the publishing process usually takes a long time. You know, there's there's a queue and you have to join it. But in this case, um, the publishers had scheduled it for next spring because of the Trump election, you know, this autumn, they didn't want me publishing <laughs> in this autumn season. It's always hard to get people to focus on fiction when there are political drowse going on. <laughs> so they said, oh, we'll put it off till next spring. Um, but then um, when I delivered the you know, the finished manuscript in, in early March this year, they said, you know what, uh, if there's a pandemic on, this could be part of the conversation. Um, it seems a better time to bring it out in July. And I was like, can you do that? Can it happen that fast? <laughs> Apparently they can.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting with with everything that's happened in the world in the last six months, the, the pandemic of 1918 has definitely received a renewed interest and a renewed look. Um, as someone who wrote about it, what similarities do you see between what happened then and what happened now?
2: Yeah, I've been delighted to see people pay attention to the, the flu pandemic of 1918, because it's it's a weirdly forgotten world event. If it had happened on its own out of a quiet sky, you know, um, it would have been very memorable, but it got kind of overshadowed by the, the lingering horrors of World War I. Um, so, so I think it was a hugely important event. And once you start talking to people, they very often got a, a relative who died in it, or stories of the fear of it. And I suppose it's obviously similar to now in that it happened um, it quite rapidly, spread across the entire world um, at a time of social upheaval. And in particular, it was a society that, like ours, was very industrialized. You know, we're not talking about you know medieval plague. Um, it's it, these were modern times people were traveling to work on, you know, cars and buses and trams and trains. And that's one reason the pandemic spread across the world so fast is that it was our modern world of really rapid movements, of huge numbers of people. Um, so I suppose what drew me to write about it was, was this insight that if you wrote about it well, it could feel like a sort of post-apocalyptic story rather than a sort of traditional historical one, like a, a really eerie atmosphere, of busy modern cities, but everything, shut down slowed down you know people sort of frozen by terror but still having to get to work you know
0: what's interesting is like i remember when i first learned about it everyone called it the spanish flu and now there's this sort of movement i guess to just call it the 1918 pandemic because the spanish flu is is a bit of a misnomer or people don't understand why as as someone who who's a writer for a living what is the importance of of a name or or a title
2: It's crucial, isn't it? And the reason I avoid saying the Spanish flu is that it was a propaganda term at the time. It was just like Trump attempting to call this one the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. Luckily, those terms have not stuck. basically the, the countries fighting in World War I didn't want to admit that they had a major crisis at home. So none of them would admit that the flu was running wild in their countries. You know, they would tuck little headlines about the flu several pages on in the papers, you know, when people were dropping dead in the streets. Um, but in Spain, they were neutral. So they had no particular, you know, um, propaganda to, to, to issue, So So other countries started calling it the Spanish flu. Yeah, it seems to have begun in Kansas as far as we can tell now. And, you know, again, like with the coronavirus, it, it hit some parts of the world much harder than others. It was worst in Asia and Africa, in fact. Um, Ireland wasn't particularly bad as, as these things go. But um, because Ireland is where I'm from, I decided I'd set my story there to try and um, you know, be as authentic as possible. And I thought I would set it in an inner city hospital. And what I didn't realize until after COVID was that that, that gave me a chance to emphasize how much um, pandemics you know, hit the poor harder, basically, there's nothing equalizing about them. There's been such an obvious, you know, divide between those of us who've been able to stay home and work online um, and those who've had to keep going out to work Um, and and the same thing back in 1918, you know, basically the the poor never get to stay home and keep themselves safe.
0: Well, you know, you said it in Ireland and Especially in in that time in Ireland, there was a lot of stuff going on, you know, I think it was only, what, four years, uh, four years away from the, from, from the revolution. Um, Mm -hmm. As, as, as an Irish person, what, what fascinates you about that particular time in, in Irish history?
2: Well, what amazes me is how fast things changed. because, you know, I think my own ancestors are fairly typical here. I think my grandparents were really getting on with trying to earn a living and survive around then. And they would have had no particular feelings about the king or no particular objections to being run by Britain as part of the British Empire. Um, And so in 1916, when there was our very small sort of six-day rebellion, I think most people were like, what are those messers doing? You know, troublemakers, terrorists. Um, And yet, as you say, Four years later, the country as a whole was demanding to leave, demanding to be separate. So clearly people went through some amazingly fast shifts there without any benefit of social media, you know. Um, So I liked analyzing the way that maybe the war and and the flu pandemic as well, basically when you have is going crazy all around you people can actually change their minds faster but so we saw that say with, with black lives matter this spring you know there have been cases like george floyd's for years and i've always sort of noticed them and then life moves on but this time because of the pandemic we were we were all in a, in a state of mind where suddenly major social changes seem possible
0: your, your your main character uh in pole of the stars is a nurse that's just about to turn 30. um as someone who you know reached that plateau not too long ago, what, what was it about that age that, that you thought w- was appropriate to to tell this story?
2: Sure. I mean, even now it's a bit of a milestone, isn't it, Dan? You know? Yeah. Um, even if people say like, oh is the new 20 or whatever. You know, everyone notices when they when they turn 30. It's not like reckless youth anymore. Um, and I think I wanted to, I wanted her to turn 30 um I wanted her to be able to get a vote. They would have a vote literally just a few, one month later and they gave the vote to women over 30. So I liked the idea that she would be of that generation who were 30 then, but also she'd really be counted as a spinster if she wasn't married at 30. So I wanted her to have to think a lot about like herself as a, a political agent for the first time if she had this new thing, the vote. And also to think about herself as like, okay, what if I don't get married and have children? what do I count for then in Ireland where there was such pressure on women to have so many babies to you know prove Irish women and good wives to their husbands and good Catholics above all I mean you know my mother's a a later generation but she still had eight of us you know that's the kind of thing that unfettered Irish Catholicism led to (laughs) and I'm the eighth so I can't even really wish she hadn't um but um but it was a very strange you know culture of of sort of a very pro natalist policy and so i was interested in what a, a childless spinster might find uh, to do with her life in that kind of situation
0: and and, and the fact that she was a nurse and you know uh, being a, a frontline worker today is is getting all the praise and as well they should but what what did making her a nurse and sort of working in the ward during the pandemic uh why was that important do you think for for the story you wanted to tell
2: um yeah, nurses get so much of the praise and yet they don't necessarily get the safe equipment, the time off, the money, you know, <laughs> it's a much praised profession. But I think it's always been a kind of an interesting um, halfway point, you know, nurses have expertise, but not necessarily that much power. And we value them, but we see them as a kind of an extension of the traditional feminine role. Um, so, um... I think back in 1918, in particular, nurses had less sort of professional confidence than they would have today. They had to ask the doctor for pretty much everything. And even in, in read, you know, guides for nurses were written by doctors, the tone is very stern. It's like, we're telling you all this biological information just so you'll understand in time to call the doctor, right? Don't be doing any of this yourself. Um, so it's, it's a funny, you know, they're clearly afraid of nurses getting too, um, taking up too much power within their roles. So, you know, I call her Julia Power, ironically, because really she has very little power, except that because things are, are you know, rather out of control during the pandemic, she finds herself in charge of a ward by herself for the first time. So I like the idea that although it's usually a very strict kind of Victorian hierarchy in every hospital, suddenly things would be a bit more open because so many people are out sick or dead. So suddenly she'd find herself a bit more able to make the kind of um, you know, informed but still instinct-based decisions that you know, the readers are wanting her to make. I didn't want her to be just a cog in the machine, basically.
0: In, in, you know, in, in the beginning of the book, you sort of anthropomorphize the virus uh, a, a little bit. What's your process like in terms of describing characters or, or things that, that aren't human and, and giving them a life?
2: Sure whenever i start a book i find myself thinking about what governing images might help to pull the whole thing together so um say with my last novel akin because it was all about family relationships i I put in a lot of imagery about family trees and trees and roots so this time around i remember early on thinking i wanted to use machine imagery because um in the 1910s and 20s they were so in love with modernity and speed and you know motor car races and airplanes, um, the sheer, um, you know, the thrill of the future. And there was a movement in art, which was all about the, the blur of speed. So I thought it would be lovely to use, um, you know, machine images in a slightly more sinister way in this book for, for the war or for um, the virus itself, or to show city as a kind of a machine, which is grinding to a halt and, and falling apart. Um, so, you know, a lot of the effect of, of writing in a novel, it's actually it's the stuff readers don't necessarily um, notice it's tiny little patterns of imagery or or you make a word meaningful by using it a couple of times so that by the time you bring it in on the last page it's got such force and um, readers may not even notice this stuff but it, it it really helps give them that strength of like oh yes that's the right word that's that's what should have happened
0: uh, and and you make a along that note you sort of make an interesting decision your your four sort of chapter headings are all are all based on colors that are sort of symptoms of of a worsening uh, virus what went That's into right.
2: the, the, the virus often caused cyanosis where you would gradually darken in the, the face and the fingertips um because of a lack, lack of oxygen and i i thought that was a wonderful way to make the flu really vivid and to make it matter of the senses rather than kind of abstract statistics so i thought if i named the chapters these four colors by the time you get to the second chapter you're starting to guess that this is like a kind of a you know a warning system a color-coded warning system of things getting worse um, I'm always looking for ways to make things, um, you know, vivid and detailed rather than abstract, I suppose. You,
0: you, you know, you talked earlier about um, religiosity and your religious background. Obviously, you're you're one of eight. And it seems like now we have, you know, there's the old Catholics, but we've seen a lot of change in Ireland with the young progressives and, and the gay marriage vote and, you know, um, ab- abortion being legalized. What do you think are some misconceptions that people still have about? Ireland and and that culture?
2: That's a good question. Um, Yeah, as you say, Ireland has transformed so fast. I mean, maybe not quite as fast as the transformation we were talking about from about 1916 to 22, but certainly since 1990, my God, you know, I grew up in in Ireland in the 1980s where, you know, there was like a hysteria craze about statues moving and crying, religious statues. And I remember as a teenager, I was just like, so out of this country. You know? And now, as you say, I think Ireland was the first country to bring in same-sex marriage by referendum. Um, it's it's a transformed country. I suppose one misconception people might have is they might sometimes think that the more traditional older people are really hostile, conservative, kind of the equivalent of MAGA hat-wearing, shrieking homophobes. And often I would say, no, it's more that there was a kind of a culture of discretion. You know, like, I used to know gay or lesbian people in their country village who Nobody would really have been all that surprised to hear that they were gay, but it was never quite spelled out either. It was all very sort of, you know, keep it discreet and keep it in the family. You know, that wouldn't have worked for me. I was from Dublin and I emigrated to the 20. Um, but but there, were, there were ways you adjusted to, to people's, you know, not so normal behavior. And, um, you know, like, like every culture, it had its ways of getting by, you know. So probably in the way that kind of what they call Southern charm might operate in, the, in, in parts of the U.S., ireland had its kind of social lubricants you know but i'm certainly so glad that now it's a much more you know call up the radio and tell your truth kind of country
0: <laughs> uh yeah you know i i was i was in dublin a couple of years ago and i was i was really struck by its diversity i think that's something that's not often talked about especially in dublin um, um you know how, you, how my
2: generation is. of of white people um We sometimes admit to each other that we have to restrain this really embarrassing behavior we have, which is we walk through the streets of Dublin and someone comes towards us who's not white and we grin at them, you know, as if they're an old friend, because we're like, oh, cool, this is not the Ireland we grew up on, you know? And we're like, Emma, don't grin at a random person just because you're so happy they don't look like you. Really, when I was growing up, everybody everybody looked like they could have been my cousin, you know, there was a really kind of creepy suburban similarity to it. And now, oh, so, so different
0: uh you know th- this book obviously is is set amongst a pandemic as as a writer what what kind of research do you find you have to do about you know science epidemiology and, and all that medical jargon especially period medical jargon
2: yeah it's funny with with it's funny if you're writing about um say Clothing in the 18th century. You really just have to get it right in 18th century terms. Nobody's going to jump up and say, that's not true of silk fibers, you know, but with medicine, of course, you have to make sure it's still kind of true, timelessly, scientifically true, properly true. So often um, with this flu stuff and the childbirth stuff in the novel in particular, i would research it on modern websites to make sure i was you know like the mayo clinic really reliable websites to make sure i was getting the actual facts and then i would kind of peel that away and say to myself what did they know of this in 1918 what what machines did they have what drugs did they have and it was usually none of these things they had a vague understanding of something and they would have no treatment they would just watch and wait um, or sometimes they would have really really bad ideas um, like their policy on stillbirth was that you you boxed the stillbirth up Um, and put it on a high shelf and didn't allow the mother to talk about it. Just like, let's pretend it didn't happen. Tell her to have another baby as soon as possible, you know? So so there were times when I was afraid my readers would think that my nurses and doctors were really bad at their job or really cruel um, because their methods were so unlike ours. So just occasionally I, 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 I didn't want to give Julia knowledge that was way ahead of her time, but occasionally I have her slightly doubt a policy or maybe wonder if something's going to be effective. I mean really in the 1918 pandemic they had no decent medicines they were doling out hot whiskey just as a kind of a comfort um, they had oxygen machines but they only used them for a couple of minutes at a time so they could do nothing they didn't even have ivs for iv fluids and um, there's a, a scene of a blood transfusion in, in my novel where it's literally a live donor or a donor on the hoof as they used to call it you know just literally squeezing the blood from one person's arm into the other's. So it makes me so grateful to be living through a pandemic today rather than then.
0: You, you, you know, you you mentioned the the word facts and I feel like information is, is almost under attack and, you know, people are posting everything left, right and center like, oh, this is factual. But, you know, as, as someone who's researched stuff, do you find that it's not only what information you get, but where you get it from in terms of how you figure out whether it's credible?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, like every 12 year old, I use the internet. I think the difference is because I grew up in the book era and because I'm aware that some sources are much more reliable than others. I think I can be a bit more discerning about whether, you know, the website you come across is, is liable to be trustworthy or not, or you, you check it or you go to Snopes. So this is, this isn't even a sort of a book versus internet thing. It's just all about critical thinking. And, and I, I love it when um when young people nowadays you know there was that study recently that said you know the ones getting suckered by fake news or scams on Facebook it's the oldies it's not the young ones you know so I don't want to stereotype any generation but yeah I think I think I've been really glad to publish this novel which is such a sort of pro-science kind of novel and even though writers fictionalize it doesn't mean we don't care about the facts you know like I could usually tell you exactly what changes I've made to make a better story um, it's not a watering down of fact; it's just the carefully select the facts that will make the most interesting story um so yeah i think this is it's, it's a crucial era to emphasize fact even in your fiction
0: well you know on, on that note how do you go about setting a a fictional story in, in a historical setting what you know other than the main plot line of of the virus what sort of aspects of that era do you pull in to your fictional world
2: sure i think it's all about choosing a good point of view so um I think my crucial decisions for this book were um early on I came across the the fact, that the little known fact that um, the flu was was most liable to to lock onto women in late pregnancy and it did them terrible harm and it caused disruptions to their births. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting combination of, of, of crises. If I could set a novel in a in a birth ward so that was my key decision and i think making the the point of view character a nurse slash midwife that was helpful too because like i was saying she's kind of halfway up that power structure she's not the cleaner but she's not the doctor so she really has to kind of fight for some agency in terms of helping her her patients and then setting it in an inner city dublin hospital that would deal with mostly poor patients i think that was really helpful too because you would have you'd be telling a different kind of pandemic story if you were among the rich there um so i really yeah, they were my key decisions, I think. And something else I tried to do, for instance, is bring in the war, but <clears throat> you know, not by suddenly setting a scene in Belgium, but by showing the kind of lingering horror of the war. So I decided uh, I wanted Julia to be in a slightly unusual setup, you know, not just in a dormitory of all nurses. But I thought, what if she's lodging with her brother and he's a war veteran and I wanted to give him some sign of damage. So I thought, well, he'll be physically fine, but he'll be mute. So... Um, I suppose bringing in the war and, and having a backdrop of, of childbirth and poverty were the kind of key decisions there. Um, and then you let yourself, I don't know, you let your your characters have conversations and all sorts of things will come up. But I think the, the key thing is to only include a fact or a, a line of inquiry even if it comes up sort of naturally in terms of what the, what the characters would be talking about. Um, for instance, I, I find it interesting that the Germans cremated the bodies of their dead and the british would have thought this was horrifying like you know dismemberment but um you know i thought well i'll only include this fact if i find a moment when it really fits and so when a doctor is doing an autopsy with julia the doctor starts saying well you know you know all those rotting bodies may be contributing to this pandemic you know the germans cremated their, their bodies much much healthier so you know that was that was the right moment for that fact uh,
0: how do, and how do you decide how how graphic to get because in, you know in some stories Subtlety is better and in, you know in, in other stories being really really overt can can get the point across And especially when talking about medicine, how, how do you sort of walk that line?
2: Well, it, it's funny with this one I didn't really feel I was walking the line I felt more like I'd, I had made the decision to write a novel about childbirth and write it from the point of view of the midwife who was literally staring at the <laughs> what they used to call the soft parts of the woman, um, you know, she's seeing it more than the woman giving birth is even. And I thought there's no way to to write in a tasteful or euphemistic way. You know, it's the kind of novel that will horrify some people, and even some reviewers said they read it through their outstretched fingers. You know. <laughs> It's funny how we think that'll help us, isn't it? The hand up. Yeah. Um I no, I just I just thought I I'm, I'm gonna go for it this time. I'm I'm going to be very celebratory of the, you know, the messy, bloody, heroic struggle that is childbirth. So I, I just went for it. I suppose where I would try for subtlety is in things like um, you know, the, the relations between the characters, for instance, the different women in the ward, you know, there are slight tensions about one of them being rather more rich and middle class than the others. Or, you know one of them is not married but you know i don't have any major shrieking rows between them i keep things fairly buttoned down at the level of their conversation just as physically things are going absolutely nuts in terms of um the, the ups and downs of the childbirth process
0: you know Ju- julia is a woman you know on the cusp of this of the suffragette movement and it seems like both in ireland and around the world a lot of the, the social change that we're seeing are being driven by young people, young women, of course, in Ireland, there was the whole uh, Sunita case which spurred, uh, spurred the uh, abortion mm-hmm. uh, legality. What is it about about young people and, and, and young women that that drives change compared to you know uh, di- different demographics or, or older generations? That's
2: a great question. Um, I wonder. You know, we hear a lot about young men and risk, you know, that literally the particular combination of chemicals going to the body of young men is, is it's the same thing that gets them into trouble with the criminal justice system, but the same thing that sends them off to war willingly too. And the same kind of, you know, wild energy you might see in say young hip hop stars or something. So, and I think, I think that's more of a youth thing than specifically a male thing. So I think, you know, we see the kind of, you know, passion and enthusiasm and no holding back no holds barred energy that you see in say you know protesters in the black lives matter movement you know i mean yes there will always be some older people too but often these things are are lifted on a kind of a wave of youth energy and you know we tend to mock people doing um you know online only activism you know it's easy enough to, to to um to um to click it's easy enough to to just confine yourself to signing petitions, but often things start online and then they move into the streets. And I think this has been an extraordinary year in terms of youth activism. And um, Greta Thunberg and, and climate change activists, that's another example of where young people seem a bit more able to just, you know, cut right through the fog and say, this is what matters now, rather than being kind of cautiously balanced in their, in their political agendas.
0: Your, your novel Room was of course adapted into a fantastic film. Um, any talk about whether A Kin or Pull of the Stars will see the, the big screen?
2: There has been talk about both of those, both of them. Um, but the one that's most likely to make it next is The Wonder from a novel from 2016. Um, that, that's probably next in the pipes getting made. As soon as COVID allows it, of course. <laughs> um, but, um, and, and, you know, there's so many uncertainties in the world of film. But I would say that's the one we're most likely to see next. Yeah, which is so exciting for me.
0: If, if, if you had a choice of casting, who would you put in it?
2: I can't say, you see, because, because then if, say, The Pull of the Stars becomes a film and, and we, uh, we get different actors, then they'll feel they weren't my first choice, you know? So it's like, you should never speculate aloud about who you might marry in 10 years' time, you know? Um, <laughs> especially as film takes so long to put together. What's amazing with Will is that it happened in only five years, you know, that was a remarkably smooth process. And, and I was so happy with that film, especially it being an Irish Canadian indie film. I thought it was kind of the, the Irish and film and Canadian film industries working at their best and very collaboratively.
0: Well, the film, uh, not the film, <laughs> the book uh, is Pull of the Stars uh, and it's out now. Uh, Emma Donahue, thanks so much for your time this morning.
2: My pleasure and great questions.
0: All right. Thank you. Have a good day.
2: You too. Nice. Bye-bye.
0: And once again, that was my conversation with author Emma Donahue. Her new novel, The Pull of the Stars, is out now. That does it for me today. Stay tuned. On Tuesday, my guest will be Andrew Piper, author of the new White House Haunted House Mystery Story involving President Franklin Pierce. The residents. And Thursday, I'll be speaking with filmmaker Eric Marola about his documentary, The Andorra Hustle. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. I like to have a lot of sex.